My sense of humor is so different than so many people. I told the uh, worship team on Wednesday night that uh, we always gather afterwards and we pray. <laughs> and after I had prayed, they were, they were like, so what are you talking about Sunday? Because I was asking prayer for today's message, <laughs> which I don't normally do. I said, well, it's just there's not really a tie-in to Mother's Day without really straining. And even then, it's not going to be great. So, But I had an epiphany. Just, yes, uh-oh, I know. See, Ben's mom and my mom are like two peas in a pod. I don't know which one gets, anyway, you'd have to know either one of them to know what I'm really talking about. My mom was the disciplinarian in our household. It was not my marshmallow dad. You did not mess with the drill sergeant, which is what mine and my brother's friends called her behind her back. (laughs) And this morning's message is taking us into that light and lively subject of genocide. Yes, genocide. And you see, when me and my two siblings would be driving in the car, my dad driving, my mom in the passenger seat... And we were doing what siblings do. After my mom, when I say yelling, I mean yelling. Yelling at us for who knows how many times till she couldn't take it anymore. And then she had this reach. Now she's only five, was five foot three, that's all. She had this arm though that I swear could go all the way to the back of the rear deck of the window without her even turning completely around. And she would start the helicopter of genocide. (laughs) And we're like, hit the dick! Ah, And that would work for 10 minutes. There you go. Happy Mother's Day. We're in 1 Samuel 15, but I need to back up a little bit just to the end of chapter 14. This is what we read last week. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the sons of Ammon, against uh, Edom, the kings of Zobah and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Because of the juxtapositioning of this passage, which ends chapter 14, and we go right into chapter 15, it seems like it's the end of the story regarding Saul and his reign and king. But then, as soon as we jump into 15, which we're doing, we have a continuation, without skipping a beat, of King Saul's reign. But the summary that I just read in the last part of chapter 14 includes, in that little summary, an incident that we haven't even read about yet, which we are going to be reading about in just a minute. And I wanted to bring this up because it can be confusing, even more confusing than I'm probably making it sound. But at the end of the day, it's just a common literary device that we see in other literature. Consider something like this. You pick up that novel. It was a dark, 
and stormy night. When the wayward honeymooners coasted into the dual yard, we'll make it colloquial, of the dilapidated farmhouse, when they noticed the sign for the Party Clown Museum. <laughs> that intro then ends very abruptly in that novel, and the story begins earlier saying the joyous couple began their journey on a cheery spring day. Sooner or later in that novel, you will return to the scene at the creepy clown museum. Okay, perfectly clear? Great. Thank you, honey. As we begin this next chapter, it's a good time to try and explain some of the harder mysteries of God's workings in the world. And let's face it, there are some, especially in the Old Testament. You've probably heard the criticisms. If you haven't, I certainly have. What I'm going to explain, or at least try, is going to be hard to hear and potentially even offensive. Many pastors would simply slide over it without commenting. But I can't because I know that the big complaint that is out there that I just referred to is that the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament, is this cruel, murderous, unfeeling deity who is like a little boy with a magnifying glass going around on a nice summer day with clear sun looking for anthills. Okay, there's like three real boys in here. My deep concern is that if you are young in your knowledge of the Bible, which means young in your understanding of the God of the Bible, or you are not even yet a worshiper of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you may be turned away today saying to yourself, well, I, I, I can't worship a God like that. I wouldn't worship a God like that. Those are the comments I have heard frequently from people. It's a common way of dealing with the God of scriptures in those difficult places, unfortunately. So I am compelled this morning to give the biblical explanation for God's harder to understand actions in the world. And so what we have to do, we have to begin at this point of remembering that he himself has warned us in advance. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then he gives us the truth that we need to cling to despite those harder aspects of his workings in the world alerting us as the passage continues. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God really wants us to know that we do not, indeed, we cannot think like God thinks at the level He thinks. We do not know as God knows. But the one constant that we do have is that God's actions in the world, 
are not governed by anything other than his own holy, loving, compassionate character. Which means he is never swayed by popular opinion. He is never diverted by popular sentiment. He is never influenced by cultural standards of right or wrong or good or bad. He is only ever compelled to act only out of his own holy and righteous being. In fact, he cannot do anything other than that. God being omniscient, meaning he knows everything. And he knows everything all at once. Which means, according to Psalm 139, even before there is a word on our tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Later on in the same Psalm, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for all of us, when as yet there was not one of them. God is outside of time, meaning he never comes to the knowledge of anything. He never comes to a place of understanding. He knows all that there is to know already. In a perennial complaint that I have fielded from believers and non-believers alike is if God knows everything, then why doesn't he stop the wicked? Why doesn't he intervene? He knows everything. He knows who's been conceived. And so why doesn't just God intervene right then and there? And that person never sees the light of day. Well, that is a much more complex issue than I can fully deal with. But hopefully what I'll say will be helpful. Even that so-called solution to a lot of people, and I tell you, it's, I've heard it so many times. Well, if there is a God, why doesn't he stop it? It is fraught with so many problems. But first of all, let me ask this. Who says that God doesn't do precisely that and stop the wicked? One of those issues that I can't really deal with this morning, though, is let's remember We have to define things precisely when we're talking God of the universe and theology. Is there anyone in the history of the human race, now, before, or ever after, who comes into the world who is not by definition already evil, wicked, and corrupt? The answer is no, there is none. So to take your common popular solution to its infinite extension, you have God in a universe again without anybody. Well, but again, you know, God could, and then we start playing with, well, what level of wickedness? And who would determine that? Well, well, God would. Okay, but you tell me, what level of wickedness is acceptable to you that would be allowed to live if you were God? You see, there's all kinds of problems there. But So stay with me now for an answer, not the answer, but an answer. 
from Genesis onward, very first book of the Bible, the Amalekites were among the nastiest of the nasties of humanity. They were Canaanites, but they were, if you will, a subgroup of the Canaanites, and they were, and the Canaanites were notoriously nasty, and the Amalekites were even nastier than they were. And early on, the Lord had one solution to rid the earth of such nastiness, of such wickedness, and that was to eliminate the entire people group, removing them from the planet. Now that sounds to me exactly what people say the solution is, until we start seeing it actually play out as we do in this passage in 1 Samuel 15. As Joshua was leading God's people out of Egypt, again, this goes way back now from 1 Samuel, the Amalekites met up with them and attacked God's people as he's taking them out of Egypt into the land of promise. The Amalekites attacked them at Rephidim. And so long as Moses, though, if you remember the story, as long as he held up the staff of God, they would prevail. The army would prevail over the Amalekites. But of course, Try and hold your hands up sometime, even empty, yet alone with something in it. You start getting tired pretty quickly. And so what happened was Aaron and her, her who is a him, not a her, prop up, I know, prop up Moses' arms with a rock so that he wouldn't lower it and they would continue to prevail against the Amalekites. Exodus seventeen fourteen says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now you're thinking, okay, I get it. The leader, Amalek, yeah, God's going to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work that simply. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest, Deuteronomy 25, from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. God's stated goal is to take the Amalekites to extinction, not to subjugation, not to treaties, not to verified reduction in arms or reduction in people or anything else, but God's stated goal, God's perfect solution is the removal of an entire people group because of their exceeding wickedness who in God's comprehensive knowledge knows that it will not stop through any other means. Today, we call this Genocide. Is there a more offensive word to those who know history than genocide? What is it? Well, it's the destruction of a mass of people because of a singular, usually singular identifying characteristic, which can be nationality, it can be ethnicity, it can be religion, or it can be race, just to name a few. So we begin this intriguing, if not difficult, passage of 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, Samuel is the high priest, 
And uh, he was given the task by God in the day to anoint the king. The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. This is past tense. It's already taken place. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man, not just Amalek, man in the plural and woman, child, uh, now our knees start to shake. Child and infant, and even ox and sheep and camel and donkey. What is your visceral reaction to that? God is saying, we will exterminate the entire race of the Amalekites. This loving compassionate God of the Old Testament. Yeah, see, that's exactly why. I, I'm, that's why I'm a Buddhist. Because we like peace. We like to meditate. Where we may demand what seems to be compassion, mercy, and grace in any particular moment by sparing the innocent from our vantage point. God, who is all-knowing, sees devastation and murder for the masses in the future. What did God say? God's ways are not our ways. Genocide was God's solution to exceeding wickedness. First of all, right out of the gate, I want to make sure that you hear me give a gigantic qualification that is foundational to all of what I'm saying from this point on as well as before. God, that is true God. Pantocrator, as he's called in the New Testament, meaning the ruler of all things. Adonai, Lord in the Old Testament, is the only one who can make pronouncements of genocide hear that well and what that means that means no human authority not kings not rulers not queen queens not kings not rulers not presidents not dictators can make such decrees only god almighty well wait but can't we say that that's true of all divine dictates? Yes. But no. But yes. <laughs> Let me explain. No time. Let me sum up. God's, God said, sorry, that never gets old. <laughs> Some of you are going, what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, let's just go back to a very basic, one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That divine edict came forth out of the very nature and the very character of God, as do all moral pronouncements. 
Since that divine pronouncement issues forth from God's flawless character to mankind in general, mankind in general is obligated, obligated to impose the same pronouncement, even working to make laws respecting that divine pronouncement. Romans chapter 13 in the New Testament explains very clearly that is the role of government. In an earlier era of our history, we did just that. Adultery is still on the books as a crime in over 20 states. Now, is it ever prosecuted? No. At least not that I'm aware of. And in my research... It's never prosecuted anymore. But it just, again, harks back to a day when, oh, no, no, things used to be different. But genocide, you understand, is not a moral precept. Now, a deep-thinking philosopher type could take issue with my wording here. But rather than writing a book to get precise like that, I'm just giving it in a nutshell. Genocide is not a moral precept issuing from God's character to mankind in general, but is a pragmatic decision, meaning a practical decision for the good of a greater goal as determined by God, who is all-knowing alone. Now, with respect to our text at hand, the world has been at war since the outset of life on the planet. (laughs) Even our young nation, which has only been around for 242 years, which is young as countries go, along the way of our brief history, there have been various multinational signatories to international agreements forbidding the practice of genocide. That is as it should be. Because who has that prerogative alone? God alone. In fact, such laws were intended to constrain the very natural evil nature of man against man, making certain activities illegal even during warfare. Hence the Geneva Conventions, just for example. They forbid, among many other things, the intentional bombing of civilian populations. They make illegal the targeting of civilians. They make illegal the targeting of hospitals and schools for obvious reasons. So genocide is overwhelmingly condemned by the majority of the world Again, as it should be, since only God can make that edict for the destruction of an entire people group, which is what is being ordered by God in the text this morning. And this isn't an isolated occurrence in the Old Testament. As I proceed, we have to remember again that God is God and you and me are not. As I proceed, we have to remember that God's ways are not 
our ways. And God's ways are always perfect, whether we understand them or not. And as I proceed, we have to remember that God himself and no other is inscrutable. Which means God is beyond examination. He is beyond inquiry or explanation. But God is the only one who is, despite what many rogue dictators and despots have thought over the centuries, God alone reserves that prerogative to himself. Job says in Job 5, He is the one who does great and unsearchable, that means inscrutable things, wonders without number. In Psalm 145, great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable, a.k.a. inscrutable. Do you not know, have you not heard, Isaiah writes in chapter 40, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. And nothing changes in the New Testament. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. But you see, we as fallen created beings have a problem that gets in the way of God's place in the universe. It is called arrogance among other things. Arrogance is, simple dictionary even definition, having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. This is not an issue for a particular type of person, but is part of the inherent fallen nature of every one of us. The pinnacle of arrogance is demonstrated every single time that we put ourselves before God. And the very first expression of arrogance came all the way back in the garden. When God told Eve, Eve, here are the rules for your living successfully in the garden, in my garden, which I created for your enjoyment. And God spells them out. And it was simple. There was only one prohibition. One. Do not eat of this tree. Remember the definition of arrogance. Oh, but when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and when the woman saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and when the woman saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. God, Pantocrator, Adonai, said, do not, but she And he said, tough, revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance. Here's what we must understand. At the very base, meaning at the very beginning, at the very beginning of all 
disobedience to God. Big disobedience, small disobedience, habitual disobedience, sporadic disobedience. At the very beginning of all disobedience to God is the manifestation of the singular fact that I am greater. I am wiser. I am more powerful. I am more wonderful. I am more worthy. I am smarter. I am above God. But there is only one I am. And he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Roughly around 1500 BC, 1500 years before this, best I can tell, don't quote me on that. And that lasted for only a few minutes. But then the great I am appeared again in 1 AD, the year of our Lord. For 33 years, saying before Abraham was born, who predates him by millennia, before Abraham was born, I am. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. So if God orders the destruction of an entire race of people, that is God's prerogative. Remember the purpose of the global deluge called the flood. It was for the express purpose of doing exactly what the solution of they, them, and those is, is to wickedness in the world today. Why doesn't God just stop the wicked? Well, guess what he did at the flood? He wiped out the entire population of the globe, save eight people. Moses, uh, Moses, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight people. But God never exercises his prerogatives capriciously, which means he never is given to sudden changes in mood or behavior without perfect reason so why did god destroy the population of the planet it wasn't because he got up on the wrong side of the galaxy but rather because quoting genesis 6 5 verbatim the lord saw that the wickedness that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We think about a loving God destroying the global population of the world thinking, how horrid. I could never worship a God like that. But we fail to see the profound magnanimity, that means profuse generosity and giving of His grace in such a divine decision for the sake of billions and billions of people to come. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Back to our text. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, 
child, infant, ox, sheep, camels, donkeys. Since the Exodus, the Amalekites were to God's people. This is rough. They were by their character, their nature, their, their nastiness, were to God's people what Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and all those other jihadist sects are to the world today. Jihadists are not looking for conciliation, which drives me mad when I hear the asinine discussions at the highest levels of world leaders about peace in the Middle East. Well, if Israel would only do this. They are not looking for respect or fairness. They are not in dispute over some silly, minuscule parcel of land in the Middle East. Their faith, their religion, their theology, their God requires them, requires them to annihilate anyone who is not a Muslim like them, which even includes, ironically, other Muslims who are not the exact stripe of the Muslim as they are. Who do you think are blowing up, this just happened last week again, who are blowing up the mosques in the Middle East? It's not Christians. It's other Muslims. There is no bargaining with them. Or compromising with them. And that can be said of the Amalekites. Coexist is not in their conviction or their Islamic mandate. The only solution to the Amalekite problem is extinction. Therefore, Deuteronomy 25, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death man and woman and child and infant why? The children, they have no control. They, they're innocent victims. That's God's problem. But he knows everything and he knows all. And if you do not, if you only take out, he, he says, go and take out the Amalek warriors. Well, they're, those Amalek warriors who they destroyed are going to come back again as we see throughout history with the Philistines and with the Amalekites and with the Canaanites and with the, all the other bites. It's never ending. God knows what he's doing, whether we like it or not. And it is out of mercy and grace. Well, what about the animals? I mean, what, what, are they attack animals, attack donkeys? The animals, and this is simply my conjecture, studied conjecture, is that the Amalekites are so utterly offensive at every level, you dare not take those animals 
and dare bring them to me to offer them, which is certainly part and parcel of what they would do and have done with those animals. You are to kill everything so that there is no remembrance of the civilization of the Amalekites, thus saith the Lord. What may seem like a wicked and nasty murderous God is a loving God who again knows the big picture. A wondrous God looking out for his people. If any remain, and history bears this out in the Old Testament, if any of them remain, they will be back. And in greater numbers, traveling in single file, the sand people always hide their... Never mind. Remember, I know the future, says the Lord. And I am telling you how to get permanent peace. Otherwise, plan to be fighting them from now into perpetuity. This is why last week when Saul got all wrapped around the axle, if you remember last week's message, which I sure you do, is so profoundly presented and it's there etched on your minds and you can John When he got wrapped around the axle of the mindless edict about his stupid decree about fasting instead of fighting, Jonathan excoriates his own father and the king. And Jonathan says, and now because of that, The slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Meaning, God gave them into your hand. You could have wiped them out so that the Philistines would be a thing of the past as well. But no. They would be around for many years to come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The uncomfortable parts of Scripture and the pulpit ministries over the decades and of the centuries, although more popularly in the last hundred years or since the Enlightenment at any rate, more and more pastors decide, I don't like that. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello. We'll just go by that one. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Something like that. I don't know. Sometimes it just gets into me. I can't get that dancing frog looney tunes out of my head. Do you understand that we cannot understand God, but but this minuscule fraction of who he is, and that just possibly outside of the realm of our impressive understanding and knowledge through the centuries, that there's 
might be something outside of that speck of what we understand of God that we don't understand. Well, the, the rational answer is, well, yeah, of course. You can't even argue that position. And so I hope that you walk away with two things. It is God's prerogative to say the population of the whole earth is history or a particular race of people is all history. But nobody but God, not even a prophet, as would happen today. Well, I know that, and that's why I'm speaking for the Lord. I got a secret set of tablets, or I had this vision, and God appeared to me in person, Jesus, and he said, here's what you are to do. You are to go wipe out the whole generation. No, no, illegitimate, illegitimate. God is the only one, and he is the only one who rightly can do that. And it is exactly because he is loving and merciful and gracious. And we cannot see past this little tip. And even that is blurry, especially the older you get. Let me have you stand. By the way, Samuel had a mother. And so did Saul, come to think of it. And dear mother Hannah, what a woman of God she was. Father in heaven. Lord, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways definitely are not our ways. And Lord, you know that I like to tell you about that. Thank you for first not poofing me out of existence. And thank you for your mercy and grace in the lives of your people that you are not swayed by our hissy fits, by our lofty-sounding reasoning, dressing it in love and mercy and compassion. For you are above it all. And by faith, we declare you King and Lord and subject ourselves unto your decisions and revelations, even or perhaps especially the ones that still go against our grain. Forgive us for our profound arrogance, O oh God, that we demonstrate every single day of our lives, I believe. In your name, we give thanks and praise. Amen.